my favorite keyboard to work with, a compute like a MIDI keyboard, came out a few years ago. Is the M like O2? I don't even remember who made it. Maybe Amadio. Um, and it was really strange because it wasn't like a normal keyboard. The keys were really shallow and they traveled only a tiny bit and there was absolutely no action to it at all. In other words, it wasn't trying to be a piano. And that was quite freeing. I find that the sort of general MIDI keyboard, which is just doing its best to be, be a piano or kind of feel like a piano or whatever is really uninspiring because it shows just how inadequate those keyboards are and how they don't make sound physically. So, so in it's any like, way. don't, don't even try. Don't, don't even, yeah, yeah, I'd rather, I'd really rather something just be honest and be what it is, which is a set of buttons <laughs> really, uh, that happen to be laid out in a pitch system, the same as the piano, but at least that makes some sense, I think. Um, so it's really just an input device and I, I kind of like taking everything out entirely from that. What do you prefer? Which one do you prefer? Actually, do you, do you prefer like the childhood, a piano being a piano, or do you prefer like the artificial? We're not going to even try and kind of replicate an instrument that you grew up on. It's weird. Well, I mean, of course I play, I prefer playing the piano. There's nothing like that for me. And especially a good piano, a really kind of like loud and beautiful piano. But at the same, I mean, cause that's like, I, that's one of the, my, the things I'm, most interested in music is kind of the physicality of the instruments, the actual realness of the sound. And the piano is such the epitome of that, this huge, extremely heavy instrument with levers that hit strings that then vibrate and you have multiple strings for each pitch. So it's just this total overkill of an instrument that is so physical and the heaviness is part of the sound because, you know, the heaviness of the piano is, is what kind of makes it sound so great the heaviness the, of the wood if you were so into that or like that feeling then it's so it's it's crazy that you just said that because i mean what i know you for is like like this cd that you just gave me yeah. of like well that's these one bit symphonies like this is almost the antithesis of the realness of the sound it's like the sounds that you're using are like the, the literally one bit bleeps and bloops and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so how do you I, reconcile those two things i just i totally disagree i think that the um working with electronics in this way is a very physical action like um the way those chips create sound while on some level it's electronic sound there's an abstraction to that and of course it's detached from the physicality of a piano but what i'm interested in those composing music for electronics is really the interface between the chip which is a little computer and the speaker, which is a physical object and making the audio speaker into something that is as physical as it can be. And I, that's what the one bit stuff is, is largely about. At least the sound of it, um, is the fact that we're just basically turning on and off electricity to a speaker. And so that electromagnet in the speaker cone is turning on and off the membranes moving in and out in this extremely digital fashion, right? This binary on off, instantaneous on, instantaneous off, nothing in between um, fashion. And so to me, that's all about electricity and the speaker and how, because of the laws of physics, those together, you know, create sound. And I think that that is closer to the me mechanism of a piano, even though it's very different than synthesizing audio in like a sequencer or something, a MIDI sequencer on the computer, which is what the keyboard, what the MIDI keyboard is all about. 
Do you think it's important for people to know that it's about that physicality when they're hearing it? Well, it's an aspect. Yeah. I, I mean, that's something that I, I think is important, but, um, at the end of the day, it's also just music. Like you don't have to understand every aspect of the music to appreciate it on a musical level, of course. And then there are all sorts of other subtle things that come out of it, like the idea of a performance, like that the chip is performing the piece. Because when I program it, I program it as a score, and that kind of the chip sort of realizes that score, and that's again like a physical. You you program it as like you write it down on notes, and then you program it, or what's the process like? The way the um, microprocessor that's at the heart of One Bit Symphony or One Bit Music or any of my compositions that use One Bit Electronics. The way it works is I've programmed essentially a sequencer for it that takes music that I've written for the chip and plays it back. So when I write, for instance, One Bit Symphony, which is like a nine voice piece, the structure is basically built up so that there are nine voices that can play these different melodic fragments that I write for it. So those are composed for the chip and they get coded as melodic fragments, sort of the way like you might put notes on on a piece of paper or something like there's notes that represent the melody. And then of course the way the musician interprets notes on paper and plays them, the chip interprets the note sequences, which is kind of like MIDI, but it's like a kind of more stripped down score, uh, representation that I've used for this just because it's really space efficient. So the chip then interpret, and this is kind of, you know, all in open to interpretation too. But the way I think of it is that the chip then interprets that score, that electronic score, the digital score and performs it by turning that into these one bit audio sequences that come out of it. But when you're writing the score, you you know what the result is going to be when you're writing this quote score. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm working, you you, you know how it's going to be interpreted Mm -hmm. by the chip. Yeah. Yeah. And actually that's a, an interesting difference. Um, I do like the sort of absoluteness and the precision of the chip. I've stayed away for instance, from having, people play keyboards that are connected to like a one bit audio synthesizer because i think that since this audio is electronic it makes sense for a computer to play it and that's what the chip is doing it's sort of like this computer performer and i don't want this to get to sound too heady but you can the, get heady i mean because i don't it's sort of a subtle side point to it that mm. isn't exactly the the pure focus but it is an important part for me because essentially these pieces of music like if i have a piece for string quartet with four speakers on stage it's very deliberate that four of those parts are played by a string quartet and four of those parts are played by computer code and it's sort of like each party is doing what they do best you know the string quartet those musicians are playing their violins viola and cello really well you know, they are professional musicians who play these instruments beautifully. And then the chip is sort of synthesizing this electronic sound connected to the speakers because it can do that really well. But I bet you that, I mean, one of them is able to compromise and the other one is not able to compromise when those two things are going on at the same time. So mm-hmm. the chip is always going to be the chip and it's not open to interpretation. It can't react or adjust in order to more accurately kind of fit in with the string quartet. Mm-hmm. It's the string quartet and the humans that are like more aware of what's going on that are saying maybe we have to be less human-like yeah. in order to fit in with... Although I like the honesty of, you know, maybe the fallibility of the musicians and the precision of the chips because that's kind of what these systems are. I'm not trying to like pretend that one 
that the musicians are robotically playing with the electronics. I like some life to come from both sides of the equation. And at the same time, I mean, like, just because it's code or, you know, running on a computer doesn't mean it's detached from the physical world and reality because you have these speakers on stage with the musicians. And so the sound is coming from on stage. And once the sound leaves those speakers, it's just as much part of this world as the sound from the string instruments. So there's this kind of like cohesion that comes from the space and the venue and everything together. I agree with that in theory, but the mm-hmm. amount of variability that sure, one yeah. can have as opposed to the other, yeah. as far as far as human error, which can be amazing sometimes, mm-hmm. is much more on the side of the of four people, you know, who have to deal with life problems and then like sit down at a at a concert and then have to like figure out a way to like play this along with the chip and the the chip doesn't care. Yeah, you know? no, and that's the I mean, chip that's... is not able to do that exactly i mean that's kind of what i meant by like each plays to their strengths and weaknesses i mean when we go to see musicians play music like we know they're human and we know that what they're bringing to this piece is their own it's their interpretation like my job for the musician's side of the score ends at the score you know and then it becomes their their interpretation and their their choices of how to work with or against electronics be more or less human etc and so I love that. I love that stuff. I love that, like what you're talking about in terms of the imprecision of the musicians. And it's funny actually, because the chips, I mean, there's imprecision to code too, because you can't have, like no computer runs infinitely fast, right? So there are always going to be compromises to how like accurate, how high quality and how good the code can really be in the physical world. So, um, so for me, actually that manifests itself in terms of like really, really high pitches because really, really high pitches have higher frequencies, which means they oscillate much faster. Like in the one bit world, like they switch from one to zero to one to zero really, really quickly. Yeah, I don't know and, anything about code. So, well, just like, I mean, just explain it you, to me. So yeah, if yeah, you, yeah. It, but if you think about the faster you have to switch from one to zero, like the more, um, imprecise it can get because you're, you're, you're kind of bumping up to the accuracy of the chip itself. Like if you have to switch from one to zero really, 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 really quickly and it's off by one sample once because the chip can only go so fast, then like being a little bit off when you're in that high, that high of a pitch and you're, you have that little time, there's just much less margin for error basically. Is, and so that's kind of like one of the pitfalls of working with code too. Um, it's not perfect in a way. Does that make sense? No, that does, that, that does make sense. And I'm glad that you, I'm glad you're trying to, for me as a lay person, it does nothing about code. Yeah. Like it took me forever to figure out how to work this mixer. <laughs> was, I'm sure there's still like a little bit hissing in the background. <laughs> Look at this. For me, it was a perfect, like almost able to defy like Z News paradox as like, as the level of accuracy. But what you're explaining now is like, there's actually a margin where you can like creep up to it where that you can, might actually hear a mistake mm-hmm. can you give me an example of something that you did that writing in code that all of a sudden you plug it in and it goes and you say to yourself i don't know depending on the air pressure of the room or mm-hmm. how you know or this this type of speakers this is actually a risky performance like a string quartet like a really difficult string quartet that could fall apart because the players didn't rehearse enough yeah there's also like a 
a, a one bit equivalent to that when you're pushing the limits of what a chip is physically capable of? Yeah, good question. Um, well, what comes to mind is not specifically about performance, but I'll try to think of something for that too. Each of the copies of One Bit Symphony, the chip, its clock speed, the speed at which it runs, is it's supposed to be eight megahertz, which means it it runs eight million instructions per second. But because of the crystal, how can I explain this easily? Uh, because I mean, pretend of, I'm your grandma right now, because well, it's basically, basically my level of knowledge. Is, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, basically the um, the chip's speed depends a little bit on the battery voltage. And so basically what I'm, what I'm saying is that every copy of One Bit Symphony is slightly different, even though the code is exactly the same and they're all running on the same chip. Like if it's run, one's running a little bit faster because its clock is calibrated a little bit differently, then it'll, you'll, it'll sound a little higher pitched and another one will sound a little lower pitched. But the code doesn't know this because you're right. There is this infallibility to code itself. Like, code in the pure As abstract score too right yeah, totally because yeah, yeah, yeah. it's 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 abstract it's just information at that point and code is mathematical it sort of exists outside of like we can write equations that represent mathematical ideas but those ideas are kind of somehow um outside of the laws of physics and so the weird thing about code is that even if the program might be infallible and pure and perfect or something. It's still running in the real world and things can go wrong. I mean, it's basically a machine in that CE case that like errors can happen. Like things, if you think about it and as an analogous to like a machine with gears and cogs, like those can get jammed up. It's different ideas, of course, on the chip, but the real world brings baggage with it, you know? And so in terms of you're asking about like what can go wrong in a performance. I can't think of anything really interesting that's like about the limits of computation. This but like stereotypical thing that comes to my brain is like a speaker blowing out. Yeah, well, I mean, speakers can rip definitely, yeah. and um, I push my speakers pretty hard. But what has happened is things can short out. Like one of the voices might die. Actually, one of the speakers wasn't plugged in all the way at a Calder Quartet performance that we did at La Poisson Rouge and one of the chips during the performance started smoking and you could like see smoke on stage and they played through it and we just like lost one of the channels or something like that. And that's amazing. It worked out, right? Those <laughs> yeah. are the moments that you kind of live for like, Oh my God, this is happening right now. I know. Yeah, that's the amazing. great thing about live performance. Yeah. And those yeah. are, those are things that you can't plan for. Like for instance, like I, I, I do these drawings that are made by machine and for a long time, I don't remember fixing this bug, but there was a bug in the software where eventually there's a certain chance that it would just get off, like lose track of the coordinate system or something, and then start drawing like over here and then going off the paper or something. And those were amazing occurrences because while the code was as good as I thought it was, I couldn't see any errors or something. Nonetheless, there's still like a, a mistake can happen. And you can't plan for that mistake. If you co if you program in an error like that, it's so dishonest. But I was like, oh, I felt lucky that it could make these errors and draw like outside of the bounds, like fortuitously. It can, you know? it can be, it, uh, yeah, that's really, really kind of almost sleazy and really like cynical in a way. If you're planning an error or you're planning mm -hmm. for something to look like an error, cause it's not an error at that point, but. What about making something? And another composer comes. You know who Philip White is? Mm -hmm, sure. Yeah, he he does this loop feedback system 
that he... Uh, I love his was, work. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he explains to me that he will design something that is so complicated and unpredictable that while he's, he does, he performs with his electronics, you know, it's almost like a duel sometimes that he's mm-hmm. doing with these mixers that he doesn't know what is going to happen ever, mm-hmm. you know, and there's, of course, there's this margin of things that he knows what the general, what the sound is going to be. And these things that he's programmed to avoid like really high screaming pitches that are going to make people's ears bleed. Mm-hmm. But there's a certain margin of unpredictability at any moment that he, could happen mm-hmm. within the actual code and program itself. And that for me is a way for him to like deal with mistakes that are genuine. Yeah. Cause he's still, cause you don't know what's going to, he does not know what's going to happen yeah. within a certain margin. Yeah. And that unpredictability of course makes it really exciting for him to perform. I imagine because yeah. you're working with something that is like just outside of your control, but because we humans are so good at sort of, intuiting systems we can kind of feel like we understand them right and like we can sort of feel like we understand the weather good enough that we predict it well like some of the time i think the same thing is true of situations but it was just a little bit more windy so your umbrella turned inside out right yeah that's perfect threshold yeah Yeah. i'm in a um a noise group called loud objects we often perform we do this performance with an old overhead projector where we glue down microchips and solder them together live during the performance and each one is a noise sort of little synthesizer that we've programmed that generates noise or tones or rhythmic elements or any host of things and with those performances there almost always comes a point where we've soldered in just enough chips that it's like just outside of our control where some sound might be happening and we don't know which chip it's coming from or we don't it's like some interaction that comes out of the software and the sounds that are being produced that we just can't quite understand and we can only guess. And so it's, it's exactly, he used the word dual. And I like that because there's always this, I think of it as a beast that you're trying to sort of work with. And I guess for us, it's kind of interesting because like we've created the beast, like we've programmed that software, right? But because of how it's combined and because of like each element has enough complexity that we can still kind of understand it. But then you throw those together and if, past that limit and yeah, everything and, breaks down and you have to fight it to make it something aesthetically pleasing somehow yeah well but sometimes it, like, it i mean want to do that because it's such a you know such a mess yeah but i mean i think that that um aesthetically pleasing is of course just like one element to a performance like that where it can often be much more interesting to hear the noise that these things come out come up with outside of like our intention you know
I want to get a little bit into your, and I say biography like you're 80, but I don't mean it that way, but you're in an original place right now, aesthetically from someone who went to school like me and studied composition and started mm-hmm. with scores and learning, uh, you know, instrumentation, everything like that. How, did you did you start out as a programmer? Did you start out as a composer? How did you, what led you down this path? Yeah. Um, sort of both. I, I grew up in like elementary school learning to play the piano and I hated playing the piano. And pretty much from the beginning, I was, it was more interesting for me to take some piano piece and like turn it into my own thing than to, to rehearse it a hundred times and play it really well. And, um, so I started writing music and, and that was its own thing. Like, uh, and opposite that, I was also interested just as a hobby in programming and I wrote software and was like just kind of writing shareware programs and putting them up online and trying to sell those and sort of very like young wannabe entrepreneurial kind of spirit in middle school. I was like putting programs on AOL and trying to sell those and stuff. And I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking, there's lots of fun. So you were like a Napster wannabe or I did have lots of ideas of how to start music distribution systems that I didn't really set into to, to effect, but it was more just kind of like wanting to program for the fun of it and put things out that were useful, that sort of spirit of shareware software. And then that went into web development and building a lot of websites just for the fun of it, sort of small business ventures on the side too. But those that and music were like totally clear of each other. I was actually really adamant in music about not incorporating electronics into my music. Um, and through, well, how old were you with that? I guess this is like between high school and college. Okay. Um, I, through the end of college, I didn't, I like really actively didn't write anything with electronic parts in it because I think that I was, I was so drawn to the physicality of these instruments and for a long time through I mean, if I started composing, like, when I was, like, I don't even know what it means exactly, but when I was, like, eight or nine or something like that, I wrote my first ensemble pieces in high school. But up until then, it was just, like, me and the piano and writing piano music. And I think that that stuck with me, basically, that, like, need to write for these acoustic, beautiful instruments. And electronic sound never had that aspect to it that physicality that we were kind of trying to talk about earlier and so music generated by a computer just i talk about this idea that like early electronic sound was all about one day like anything you can possibly imagine can be recreated electronically and all the things you can't even imagine yet will one day be able to be like recreated electronically and that sort of infinite possibilities of electronic sound was sort of the antithesis of like writing music for violin or something, which is a violin. It has an identity. It's not infinite expressiveness. And when you listen to a violin, you don't think about how, like, the musician's only doing things with the violin that the violin can make. You don't think about, like, how the violin can't play back, like, a top 40 song in high fidelity the way, like, computer audio can or whatever. Like, you think about it as a violin. But with electronic sound, all that kind of goes out the window and it's just this like kind of flat plane of like infinite possibility or something. I think a lot of people do listen to the, uh, using the violin as an example, I think a lot of people do listen to that. I know I listen to that and I'm like, how do I get this to not sound like a violin? 
in in a way that still feels good to the violin player. Yeah. I don't mean like smashing it against the table or like scratching the back with your nails, although mm-hmm. people do that. Mm-hmm. But I'm always trying to get away from the the stereotypical yeah violin sound. Whether I mean that for it's- some people might mean playing pont mm-hmm. and that some people might mean like bowing on the peg mm-hmm. or something but a lot i think a lot of people go for that actually yeah it's funny i mean like what i said about le- electronic sound is definitely just my opinion it's not to say there isn't tons of amazing great electronic stuff out there but what's funny is that i'm actually i think really old-fashioned when it comes to instrumentation like i don't really try to make a violin sound anything other than like a violin or something usually and I'm really interested in sort of like the native sound of these instruments. Like, I don't know. I, I, I've just, I haven't moved past the vocabulary, the sort of in, like the native vo- vocabulary of most of the instruments I work with for better or worse. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Do you know why though? Like mentally is there, is, is that like a decision that you made? Like, okay, the electronics is the electronics, mm-hmm. you know, that is a this big open field mm-hmm. of possibilities like you just said and then the violin is the violin and it cannot move outside of that world why make that border i think it's just because that's what i feel like i have the most to say about like when i think about the music i want to write it's usually for the sort of first impression of these instruments not not across the board not always i do try to think about that when i write a, a piece with an instrument and an electronic counterpart, it usually provokes me to think a lot about the identity of the instrument and the physics of it and how it works and how it makes sound and how wind instruments are different than string instruments. But that's not to say that I end up using extended technique in these pieces. It kind of often makes me return to the original sound from them. And I don't think of it as like a negative decision i don't think of it as like closing off the door to all the other sounds these instruments can make i think more of it as like a positive association with the sound the kind of basic sound of them i try to stay away from like negative characterizations in general like one bit sound right is capable of very very little but i think of that as an expressiveness instead of a limitation and i think the same is true of the classical instruments I work with. And I think at the back of my mind, I also, I am a little bit wary of sound for sound's sake or sound for sounding different. Or like, for instance, I've, I've had, had very little interest in working with non-Western instrumentation because I, I almost find those instruments like dangerous or something. Cause how do I put this? It's, but if you can tame it in a convincing way, they are dangerous. That's the thing. Well, they're just like, they're outside of my musical vocabulary. And I don't know if I can trust myself with that or something. I don't know. So I think for a lot of composers, like that not trust and for a lot of composers, what I'm talking about. Okay. So I'm <laughs> talking about like, like generalizations you know, are gener- so dangerous. Gener- dangerous. So, okay. So uh, let me stop projecting myself onto the world and say, like, <laughs> I think for, I think for me, the reason I, try and go in that direction. And I'm also very weary about it is that that's where the personal push is for me. Mm-hmm. Like that's the, that's, the, that's my, you know, frontier. Mm, you're and drawn to that. Yeah. 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 And that's what I'm thinking about. And that's the challenge for me is to somehow do it in a convincing way where people aren't a thinking I'm doing it just for the sake of doing it. Cause it's, cause it's a trend mm-hmm. and it is a trend, especially mm-hmm. where I live. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also to see if that's where, 
I can discover like something new that I can somehow like put a flag down, put like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with my name on it and say like this is the way I do it. Mm-hmm. And it took a, took a while of pushing and failing and doing stupid things to get there, but I got, but I somehow got there. Yeah, I'm not saying that I'm there yet. I'm just saying that that's what's exciting for me about going outside of that world. So my question for you is: is that do you have a push? Mm. Where's your push? Where's your frontier? Mm. What are you trying to achieve within? the limitations of whatever you're comfortable with. Yeah. What don't you, you said, I don't trust going there. Uh, You know, I don't trust myself going there. What don't you trust about yourself that you have to eventually teach yourself? Good question. Um, I think that one aspect I'm, I'm constantly trying to push myself into in terms of unfamiliar territory is really like an expanded vocabulary of tonality. I grew up listening to minimalist music and that was a big part of my wanting to write music. I listened to like, especially early Phil Glass pieces, like two pages or contrary motion or the early Phil, like Phil Glass ensemble works are really tonal works and they're really focused on pattern, like note sequence patterns and interaction of those patterns. And, and that basically is the content of the music. And we get to focus in on that very simple process. And I think that's a really big part of my own approach to music, especially in the one bit world. That approach mimics, has a very clear and simple representation in code, which I think is quite kind of elegant in its sort of one to oneness or something. But so, uh, yeah, tonality is something that I've, I, I'm constantly trying to push myself into. And I think that's like a life, life project, a life journey or something. I mean, that's basically <laughs> what I mean, like push or border. You yeah, know? yeah. 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 But at the same time, I also like my agenda, like I kind of, I'm always trying to figure out what, what I'm trying to say next, basically, because I really like to try to keep expanding and keep wading through these ideas and, so for instance, I'm working more with white noise as sort of a counterpart to tone, but that's similarly flat at the, like, like pure tone is, is sort of flat on one end of the spectrum and pure white noise is also very flat at the other end of the spectrum. So they're kind of weirdly related. So that kind of sets up a long-term project and exploration of its own. So I kind of like to kind of, I work very slowly in exploring these ideas. And so basically I'll, I'll come up with some idea for something to explore or like go for the next eight years or something like that. And You're able to set those long-term things? Goals I think to, to, to some so. extent, maybe not eight years, but like for instance, I've started working with gated amplification where the musicians are amplified, but their signals, their microphones or whatever pickups are running through a circuit board that turns them on or off. And that's a very, very simple process. And that kind of then opens up a whole new uh, series of pieces to explore that idea. And that's going to be like a multi-year project. And the the white noise stuff is like multi-year project. So they're kind of all these trajectories that I'm slowly exploring. Do you slowly explore them by doing a series of like what, what, what's your output like in relationship to the exploration? Mm. Does that make sense? Like, are you saying so? Okay. So over the next 20 pieces I have to write in the next three years, I'm eventually going to try and get to this place. Kind of. Or, yeah. or, or is it like, okay, now I need to go in direction 
the next piece will do this thing and maybe mm. it'll take me three years to write this piece. No, I think it's more the first. Like, I'll think that maybe this piece, like I'm slowly working on this large piece for 50 violins and 50 speakers that's really meant to move both between, like, A, have vast polyphony, like a hundred voice polyphony that I have been wanting to get towards for a while and sort of slowly working towards that. And then B, work between tone and white noise because polyphony allows kind of a hint towards that through just density of pitch and sound, which is kind of like what the basis of this audio installation series I've been doing, the microtonal wall and interval studies pieces where you have like 1500 pure tones going at the same time. So that cumulative sound sounds like white noise, but it's generated by tone and you can explore that cloud of sound physically by moving between the speakers. So like that piece is a way of connecting the sort of analog idea of white noise, but kind of having it come from digital sources, like pure square waves. And then I'm bringing that into the 50 violin piece, which is, I'm, I'm like not there yet. I'm trying to write some other pieces to explore and build some vocabulary towards that. And so I think that there are these like bigger pieces kind of on the horizon that represent these sort of milestones. Maybe you could think of them and then like experiments along the way that are the smaller pieces. But that type of like grand long-term vision, I think requires a type of consistency in your own conviction. Mm -hmm. Does that, do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, sure. And are you open to the, I mean, I was just listening to your stuff and then I went to like, I went to the premiere of this, of the one bit symphony and mm -hmm. I think, a, a, you know, a, a couple of other things just during visits here mm -hmm. in New York. Mm -hmm. And I'm always struck by the consistency mm. of it. Mm. I'm wondering like what happens if you get struck by lightning <laughs> and then you wake up from the hospital and you go, I don't want to, I need to do something else. Yeah. Then what happens? Like, are you open to, are you open to that? Are you open to something like, yeah, sure. Fucking up your vision a little bit where you'd be like, Oh, I got to go in a completely different direction. Yeah. And would you be willing to give up that consistency? Is that consistency mm. like a level of comfort that you need or? No, I mean, I, I love what you're saying. I think like I'd much rather have a great idea that sets me off on a totally different path than get locked, locked into just purely um fulfilling like exploring an idea that no longer meaningful to me or something um things that get a little bit scary is when you start having multi-year projects that are actually set in motion and you have to follow through on them i'm at the early phases of conceiving of this op opera project that would combine all of these different things that we've been talking about and it's really hard to know what form that's going to take a few years down the line now when we're starting to write for grants and stuff like that. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's exciting and a little bit nerve wracking, but I think the consistency comes more than anything from just wanting to fully explore these things and, and kind of really push them to their limits or something. Maybe like I try to, like each each piece of music piece of music teaches me something, and then that might be the basis of the next or something like that. Theoretically, what are you going to do if you hit a dead end? A couple things, maybe. Like I try not, I try to say everything I want to say for a piece in that piece, 
So I very rarely write more than one piece for the same instrumentation. So I kind of have this approach where I'd rather say something fully once and move on to the next thing. And so hopefully, uh, hopefully that keeps me moving. I don't know. We'll see. But I'm always kind of like very wary of saying something, like kind of continuing to beat a dead cat or whatever, horse or whatever that expression is. Horse, like, cat. If, <laughs> <laughs> no, don't worry, Balky. Um, a horse is big enough where you can like, you can, like beat it for a while. Beating a dead cat repeatedly, that's just the mess of a puddle of a, something that used to be a cat. No, I don't want to think about it. But you know what I mean? I think that like I really want to make sure that I'm continuing to say something meaningful in new pieces and not just restate stuff over and over again. And if I find myself doing that, I'd really rather like totally upset my path and try something really different. I feel like there's so much to be said right now that I feel really excited. I'm not worried about these things because I think that like each of the pieces that I have planned to do is really a, a new, like a microcosm of itself. So I'm not like really worried about any of this stuff yet, but it is something I think about in the long term. I mean, like, what the hell am I going to be writing 20 years from now? That's a total unknown, definitely. Well, that's an unknown for anybody. If you think of an artist like Solowit, whose career is, you know, he's a minimalist artist and a lot of his pieces kind of seem the same, but they're actually like all slowly progressing his ideas and every few years he tries something totally different and he might be doing like black and white drawings forever and then suddenly they become color and that's like a whole new world and then a few years from that they might just suddenly become sculptural and like i really admire i guess artists composers etc who've made part of their their work like they've built change into their work so that it it makes sense to grow beyond a specific idea. And it almost seems like a natural progression, just one level up in the hierarchy. So who knows, you know, after I finish these pieces where I'm going to be, but I sort of, I feel like there's going to be a next, a logical next step to explore. Maybe. And a certain amount of trust in yourself to like, not let that keep you up at night, I guess. Yeah. I don't really worry about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. But there's, I always feel like there's a little bit of a contradiction when, like, everything I've heard from you had something to do with electronics in one bit and also was also contained that tonal push that mm -hmm. you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you ever have the fear of being, I don't even know what the musical term, but in the acting world, it's called typecast. Mm -hmm. Like, this is what we want. This is the guy that does it. Mm -hmm. Maybe we didn't know we wanted it before we heard him do his thing, mm -hmm. but we'll ask him and then he'll give us something like the consistent things that we've heard when we ask him to do stuff. Yeah. And that almost in a way can professionally box you in. Sure. To not let you say, Oh, it's time for me to add color. Yeah. And absolutely. I hear what you're talking about and it's, it's, something that I think about because clearly when I'm asked to do a piece of music, there's kind of a hope that it'll include electronics or something like that, let's say, just very subtly. And it's true that most of what I've written for quite some time now has included these one-bit electronics. And it's also true that I really want to write some purely acoustic music at some point. I feel lucky that I haven't had to do any projects that I don't feel honest about, that 
are fulfilling some request that isn't exactly what I want to be doing. And that has the potential to happen any, any day, right? Where you suddenly find yourself doing something that you don't want to be doing. And I, I feel lucky that that hasn't happened yet. Um, and I, I, I hope that I'll have the self-confidence to know when a project is going to be one that I don't believe in and figure out if it really makes sense for me. That said, those projects can also push you in new directions. I think the best outcome in those circumstances is when you think about what you're doing and, and find something new to say with it, even if it's within the same medium that you've been working in before. But so, uh, as far as being typecast, I don't know. I, I, I feel really strongly about the system that I've been working in with this, like basic electronics. And I've been trying to push it in new directions and the white noise stuff, for instance, is an example of that, the gated electronics and stuff like that gated amplification. I don't know. And as far yeah, the tonal question, like I'm really living in those spaces and the pieces I've written that way because that's the music I want to hear. Hopefully people don't think that it's getting boring yet. We'll see. But really those pieces are like the result of what I want to be writing. And so that's kind of where I am so far, at least. You were talking about within the tonal world, that's where your push was. Mm -hmm. Can you give me a more like concrete nitty gritty i wrote down these pitches or i programmed this code and i didn't and that's where the push was to the previous piece i'm not exactly sure because the things that come to mind are like the complete reversals like where i'm going into the white noise world so like this piece i did for mantra percussion used all symbols as the acoustic sound source they were playing symbols and i hadn't used symbols in any piece ever before yeah. So, I mean, like every one of those pieces is a complete detachment from the wave music I write that involves pitches. Like, for instance, even connected to our earlier conversation, um, I did a, like the first piece I did like that was for Pomplamoose a few years ago, maybe three years ago, maybe four years ago. I don't remember, which was like white noise coming from my one bit, one bit circuits. I love those guys. And oh, those guys are the, they're such amazing musicians. That's actually the, you know, when I was telling you how I ended up in Berlin, it was Jesse Marino who oh, I was yeah. visiting. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, well, sorry. Yeah. Well, she wasn't in the group at the time, but yeah. I love her playing. Yeah. Um, yeah, those guys are amazing. So I had white noise coming from these speakers and I'd written, um, music for them that was extended technique. It was making noise, like as white noise as you can get, but bowing violin strings, but dampening them in certain ways, you know, white noise kind of sounds from the flute, et cetera. Like all the instruments were doing that kind of stuff. So that those, those pieces like push me so far outside of the kind of way I'd been structuring music beforehand that that's what comes to mind basically. Um, and maybe they're really exciting for that. I, I find it kind of problematic though, cause I don't, I mean, I'm just, I, I still feel like I'm at the beginning of that project that I'm really exploring like, what noise organized through time coming from multiple voices like means to me and what I have to say for that. Um, it's something to do with rhythm. It's sort of something to do with timbre, but I'm still working on that stuff. I don't even really know how to talk too much about it yet. That, that, that was my question. How do you, do you feel like you have to talk about it before you go there? Or do you think you just naturally go there and you're like, that kind of worked. I wonder what I did mm. and how do I formalize that? So when somebody comes over my house with a mixer and a computer, <laughs> mm -hmm. They can talk about it, yeah. or I can talk about it. Um, well, it's really easy to talk about a piece like Microtonal Wall, this 1500 speaker piece where each one is tuned microtonally. And 
it's creating noise. And there's this whole conceptual approach to that piece that is very easy to talk about. But it's an installation. It's not a piece of music. The experience is a physical one that involves the viewers moving within that space and kind of exploring this almost scientific relationship between tone and noise and the frequency spectrum and stuff like that. There's not something as tangible with these other pieces, at least in that way. I can talk a lot about the system. Like, for instance, the, the, the white noise in these pieces, like for Pamplemousse, Mantra, etc., these, like, the 50 violin piece, the way I use noise is not exactly white noise. Like white noise is like white light. It's the sum of all frequencies. Like it's an infinite idea. It's like every pitch is included in white noise at equal amplitude. That's an analog idea. That's like an idea that comes from the natural world where you can have what we don't really know, but, um, it's, it's It's phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's based on continuity and this analog idea that of like kind of infiniteness and um computers are really bad at making white noise like we can approximate it in computation but it's not it's never going to be pure because a computer can never add up an infinite number of frequencies and output that to create white noise so what computers create is something called brown noise this brownian motion uh based noise which is noise based on kind of like events long story short um the way i create the noise is i just ra- output ones and zeros randomly and the speed at which i output ones and zeros which is based on like the speed of the chip or the sample rate determines whether or not it sounds like like a high-pitched white noise or more like like a lower pitched white noise sounding sound and it's interesting because like if you take like or some sound like that coming from a chip you can see that on average it outputs a one and then a zero and then a one zero, like maybe on average at like a thousand times per second. Let's just say I actually, I don't, I haven't mapped out the, the spectrum yet, but like what that tells us is that that sound is on average the same as like a 1000 Hertz tone. And it sort of sets up a pitch system of this digital white noise. And bear with me for just a second. I know that we're kind of like an, uh, tangent world, but remember, I'm your grandma. Okay. (laughs) But basically it allows me to sort of set up a pitch system where I can essentially like write notes using Western notation that correspond to different densities of white noise that are sort of tied to those pitches in a way. So it, it sort of almost like excuses me to continue to write pitch based music but working with like a frequency spectrum of noise that's does that make sense no that makes actually like you made it really make sense at the end which is nice <laughs> but uh um does that work that sounds cool well it works I mean, it's like your description of it sounds cool <laughs> what is what's the name of the piece the 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 pomplamoose one is called interstitials and then the mantra piece is called uh moment of inertia and uh, I'm working on a new purely electronic one called Noise Patterns, um, which we're going to do at the kitchen in May. Yeah, it kind of works. I mean, it works insofar as like you can make a, a rhythmic sequence that sounds a little bit like kind of, and you can imagine building up music that. What way. are the what are the uh, not? It's like that that capability of speed in order to create a dense sound like or 
is so beyond the means of a of Natasha playing the flute. Yeah, totally. Then, um, yeah, how so that's that realize an instrumentation, and is the relationship clear to somebody sitting in the audience that they're emulating white noise or certain types of white noise compared to the pitches that are done by the white noise and the electronics? Yeah, yeah, because certainly electronics are doing a lot of mathematics really, really fast to yeah. do, do exactly that. So there is going to be some disconnect. And in fact, it's strange because traditional classical instruments were designed to be played tonally. A piano was designed to have keys that tr hit strings, and a violin was designed so that the body resonates the frequency range that comes from the strings, which are taut. And it's almost impossible to touch a string without it creating a pitch. It's almost like you have to work really hard to make something that's not pitched on any of these instruments. This goes back to our extended technique conversation. And so my answer to that is really just trying to interpret it in that world. Um, so it doesn't have the same mathematical precision as the electronics does. And this is still an open question for me. I'm not, I haven't really answered this fully yet, but on the violin, for instance, you can dampen a string close to the pegs and bow it, and it will kind of have a lower-pitched white noise kind of thing, and you can do it really high up on the top string, and it'll have like a kind of higher-pitched white noise thing, and it'll inherit a little bit of the pitch of the string at that taut frequency, that, that you know, the pitch of that, what would be played if you dampened it with your finger, like, to a point. But it's sort of like this in-between. And same with cymbals. I mean, cymbals are all pitched to some degree. Um, it's not even pure white noise. So I'm kind of just trying to figure out what it all means to me. Like the mantra piece is really, it's different sort of ranges of pitch from these different symbols where most of the content is noise, but there's still a little pitch. Kind of like how it's and like, it's not exactly pitch, but there is something there. There's a highness and a lowness. Almost in a way, it's almost going for like that extended technique push that I was saying, why aren't you going there? It almost sounds like this has it. Well, it right? ha yeah, it has it, but it's a different path than well, what we were talking about with yeah. the tonal music. Like I, I haven't introduced extended technique into my music that deals with pitched material. They're like two different, whole different worlds, basically. And that's kind of why that critique is still really meaningful because I'm, I'm using extended technique purely in this self-contained world, basically, of the world of white noise or trying to sound like white noise. And otherwise, I'm using the instruments purely tonally in my pitch-based music. And so far, those worlds haven't really crossed over yet. And that's what I want to, for instance, get to by the time of this 50 violin piece or something leading up to that. I'm really, I'm actually like not there yet. And that's like something I'm, I'm trying to figure out. And I don't know if it's like one or the other, like together, or if there's some sort of continuum between them, like moving from one to the other in some linear way, as opposed to just introducing, you know, plus a pragmatic solution that I think that's the most difficult part is finding a way to orchestrate these things that it's done convincingly. For yeah, sure. The listener. Sure. Yeah. yeah, because I mean, I guess there's like a little bit of a sleight of hand in 
getting a sound out of an instrument that's not what's intended, like like getting multiphonics from a wind instrument or something like that. Like yeah. it's it's gonna be less obvious to the audience than playing it normally would be. Like we all understand how instruments create sound normally. But we can also kind of understand bowing the pegs of a violin, like you talk, mentioned. Like we can kind of guess what that's going to sound like, but we can't really guess like what's going to happen when you like fing- like put your ra- fingers randomly down on a wind instrument or something. Like there's there's some point past which it becomes like extended technique goes from like something we can understand to something that we maybe can't understand. Not, it depends. I on, and I haven't really thought no, about it, that it, yet. It depends on physics. But just because it's it, physically predictable doesn't mean it's easy to understand. Like, for instance, harmonics on a string instrument are 100% predictable. Um, they get more difficult the more sensitive they are. But, like, to an audience member who doesn't understand... Oh, we're talking about two different things. I'm talking about the composer under, understanding an instrument rather than an audience member understanding the sound coming out of oh, the yeah, instrument. Oh, yeah, I was yeah, talking okay. more about the audience. But I think okay, it's connected sorry. anyway because... We're talking about just different levels of intuition, and the composer happens to be more privy than the audience member usually, or maybe the opposite, I don't know. What about the magic of, oh my god, where did that come from? Yeah. So an audience member, what, what, the sax can do that, you know? Oh, absolutely. And I, I, especially if they're just staying, if, if it's a multi if it's one thing to like take out the mouthpiece and start blowing into the mouthpiece, then they're like, oh, I get it. Yeah. But if they're in the same position, and it's just the fingering is in a weird way that they can't even see, and all of a sudden this amazing sound comes out of it that oh, they yeah. expected. It's a magical moment for them. The funny thing is, though, I think that my favorite magical moments are the ones that I'm totally shocked by something new, but I immediately like see how it works because right? that's when the physics connects to it. Like one of the really like magical moment experiences that I had as an audience member was seeing John Butcher perform at um, down in Austin, an Austin New Music Co-op performance. Um, and he, speaking of saxophone, and I don't know who else does this, but this is the first time I saw it. Uh, he put the saxophone, he had an amp, like a mic going to a speaker, an amp. The mic was amplifying sound, but he was like staying back from it. And he could finger certain notes and move the instrument close to the mic and create feedback pitch, but the pitch of the feedback was a lot to do with the resonant cavity that he'd set up in the saxophone. So he could like finger a note and move up to the mic and it would just play that note. And I was just like, holy crap, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. First of you all, you understood that immediately. Yes. I mean, the way he did it was like pretty, I think, I think like, I think we have an intuitive sense of how that would work. Not me. I would have been like, he's a witch. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I see what you mean. Maybe what I'm saying is, uh, it, it spoke to me yeah, as an yeah, audience yeah, member. I mean, like your, your special team, like your specific, like little yeah, world really of what you know, that right. it, it clicked in a way that it was cool for you. Cause you're like, of course. And then it's yeah. like, why didn't I think of that? Yeah. But it's still based on understanding as opposed to just pure, like, disp- like, not understanding magic kind of. And so I guess what that means is that any audience member brings certain specialties to the table. And I'm at least, I find that what, when I'm most excited is something that really that I do understand or can hope I understand or something that like relates to me in some way into my experience, but at the same time steps beyond it. Right. I guess, I guess that's it. It looks like 
my threshold of what you can do with the saxophone was this far until that performance. And then that pushed it farther, but it was still in the realm of like my world of understanding yeah. or something. And that's also, so what that's you're, rare. That's really cool. You know, and that's also what you're trying to give people in your own work. I hope. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's definitely what I'm trying to do. Great. I can't speak to whether or not that's successful, but that's like definitely a goal. <laughs> well, that's great. Thank you for doing this. Yeah. My pleasure, Dan. Thanks for coming out here. <laughs>